it's just talking to people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it's conversations, you know, and I'm good at that. You know, I have a natural gift from God to be able to communicate with people and relate to people. Um, and I learned so much from talking to people. The best thing that I ever learned in life is if you listen more than you speak, you'll always be able to understand somebody. And one thing that I learned is that we are much more alike than we are different. We just make that more complicated. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Live Your Purpose podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan, Jr. Um, I'm very excited for, the, for, the, for this episode. This is a very, very special episode, uh, another, another um, quarantine edition episode. Um, before we get into who, who our guest is for today, you know, allow me to, you know, give my condolences um, to, to everyone being affected by coronavirus. You know, shout out to all the essential employees, everybody who's on the front line right now. Um, although it looks like the world is starting to open back up, um, we know a lot of people are still in, still in quarantine and still, you know, left uncertain. So, you know, a lot of my, my shout out goes to them. Um, I also want to send a special rest in peace um, to George Floyd, Floyd Breonna Taylor, Sean Reed, Anna Arbery, and a plethora of others, you know, who have lost their lives. Um, a, long, a long list, you know, it would take us forever to go to go down that list of individuals who lost their lives to the hands of police. Um, and this 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 oppressive system that we that we have. So um, my, my condolences and, and my prayers go out to those individuals, family and friends um, and, and just to all of us, to, to black people um, specifically in general. You know, we're all traumatized, tra traumatized. We're all grieving um, during this time. Um, so allow me to, you know, give prayers and and, and condolences to everybody. You know, I send, I send everybody my, my love and condolences um, through this through this quarantine episode of the Leah Purpose Podcast. So, without further ado, um, I'm going to introduce our guest. She was a guest um, on our, on our episode early, early or a guest on our season earlier um, on episode four. Dr. Tania Lodge. She is the clinical director of Minority Behavioral Health Group. Um, so, Dr. T, thank you so much for coming on again. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. No problem. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for coming on. Dr. T, Dr. T, I'm so happy you're here. We we need you, Dr. T. I'm not gonna I'm not I'm not gonna lie to you, Dr. T. I have been having a I have been having a hard time. Um mm -hmm. white people are out here, white people in again, and you know, as always, and it's just and it and it's and it's been tough, you know, in a moment of transparency, um through the George Floyd death and just the the constant, just everything on social media, the constant messages, the constant just seeing everything. And I, and I didn't watch the video, but just the constant information, the constant, you know, seeing other people tweet and, you know, just this heightened anxiety, this heightened, you know, call call for help and call for action. Um, it's, it's, it's left me, you know, very, very sad. You know, it, it can be extremely overwhelming and extremely depressing, you know, at times. Yeah. And, I, and I know for me, I had my moments of struggle. Um, mm -hmm. So I had to like go within, I had to meditate, I had to pray, I had to get my hair cut, I had, I had to get myself back right, you know, <laughs> That's right. to feel good again, you know. That's so, right. So I, I just want to say thank you. You know, we, we need you to, 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 to speak to, to, what's, to what's going on out there today. So First and foremost, how, how are you? How was your spirit? How was your energy? You know, with everything that you're taking on, everything that I just kind of listed, how, how are you doing? How is your mental health? Yes. Well, I have to work very hard um, to stay grounded, mm -hmm. to stay focused, 
um, and to stay hopeful. Like it's becoming more difficult to do those things with the constant persistent trauma um, and experiences of racism that we are subjected to, whether it's vicariously or directly, uh, whether it's overtly or covertly, it's exhausting. Um, and so it's becoming very difficult to stay focused or to not internalize these acts and, and pretty much buy into um, these subtle messages, these indirect messages that really speaks to um, Black inferiority um, and the dehumanization of the Black race. If we begin to really, really internalize that or if we're constantly hearing about it and experiencing it in a way, um, not only are we exhausted and angry and frustrated, but our behaviors and our responses is going to unfortunately continue to perpetuate that. So I think that's my biggest concern. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's exhausting because we're having to work so hard mentally to stay grounded in order to survive and liberate ourselves from this. Yeah, 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 that's, that, I mean, that's, that, that's it right there. I mean, it, it, it's so much. And for individuals like you, you and myself, we dedicate our lives to this type of work. So, That's right. you know, although the rest of the world and the rest of the country is in this, you know, this this moment of uproar, this is what you and I do, you know, on on a day to day, and you do it, you know, in, in different levels in, in different rooms. So that that's it right there. It, it does get extremely exhausting. How how are you just as as a mother raising black children? You know, mm -hmm. a black boy, a black teenage boy, a, a, a young black female as well. How how are you like trying to you know, take all of this in knowing that, man, my, my kids are going to be off on their own pretty soon and they're going to be having That's their right. own experiences, you know, aside aside from me. So how are you, you know, how, how are you deal, dealing with that? Yes, it's hard and it's, it's scary. And so you're right, I do have children and my son who is almost 17 and is growing and developing and maturing and demonstrating some independence in terms of, you know, life skills, who's driving, right? And so um, that becomes very scary anytime that he has to leave the home um, and the risk of him encountering police officers or, you know, white people in general who he has to encounter or interface with on a regular basis who unfortunately, are overt with their racist comments or behaviors towards them. And so for me, I just make sure that they are educated mm -hmm. and that they understand what things are, what the risk factors are, what the risks are, and what the experiences are connected to. Um, and the more we are able to have open discussion about it, um, I think it grounds and protects them so they have a level of awareness where they can be vigilant about, you know, when they are encountering certain people, certain individuals, or certain experiences where they can have, you know, unfortunately, um, racist experiences. So I make sure that they understand, you know, something that's very important in response to all of this that I'm constantly encouraging and talking about is this whole idea of racial socialization. And basically what that means is we expose our children, specifically our children, to the fact that 
we are a people who have experienced years and years and years and years and years of racism. So helping us to understand that we will experience racism and to help prepare us as it relates to how we're going to respond when we encounter these acts, um, help us to understand who we are and where we come from and how we have dealt with it in the past. Um, so the more we can socialize our kids, and this is what I do every day, all day, um, even to their, you know, pushback and like, mom, enough already, although they get it, they're being, you know, typical middle school, high school kids, you know, they listen and I know they understand it by some of their responses and feedback in our conversation. Um, but again, I make sure they are socialized in a way that they understand who they are um, culturally and racially and what that means in terms of the world. And so the more we're able to do that, it grounds and protects them in a way that when they do go out there, I can't control what happens to them, but I want to make sure they have the tools and the information and knowledge necessary that they can respond in a way that they're going to come home at night. Yeah, yeah. Listen, listen speaking of that, you know, I have a newborn um, mm -hmm. who is a black boy, you know, who's going to be a black adolescent, a black teenager, a black man. Um, mm -hmm. I was talking, you know, to my father-in-law about this last week, and he was just asking me, he was like, man, do you have thoughts, um, you know, when you are going to have these conversations with your son. Mm -hmm. And I said, I, I do. You know, I said, you know, he's only three months right now. And I'm very <laughs> intentional about speaking life into him today. Although mm -hmm. he can't really comprehend, he can't speak back to me. I know his spirit resonates with what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, you know, I think that I, I'm going to try to have these conversations with my son maybe five, six, seven years old, you know, because again, based off of what you just said right there, the earlier we prepare them, you know, the, the better they can be, you know, in, in, in having the, these these experiences and, de and dealing with these these instances out, outside of the home. So my question was like, how early did you have to have these conversations? Do you remember like your first conversation when you had to be intentional about, listen, this is what the society is. This is how they're going to look at you. You know, when did you have to really kind of like break down racism and, and, and oppression to, to your children. Do you remember those early conversations? Oh, I absolutely do. <laughs> um, and I think we should have them, you're absolutely correct, as early as possible. Because unfortunately, when they leave our homes and go into some of these predominantly white institutions like the education system, they're already going to be experiencing it. Mm -hmm. Partly or covertly, either or, um, or a combination of both. And so the earlier we can um, have these conversations to help protect them, um, the easier it will be for them. So my first conversation was when my son was in fourth grade and it was precipitated by him experiencing racism. Now, of course, he didn't know that that's what it was because we hadn't had those conversations, but he came home and he described what happened. And my response to it, um, again, I continue to listen to him as it relates to what his experiences were, but he also experienced me go and address the teacher, go and address the principal, um, and then the outcome was in his favor. And mm -hmm. so he asked a question about, mom, why did you do that? Or why did you say that or fuss at his teacher? And I said, well, son, because that was racism. Mm -hmm. We tell you about racism, what happened and what you're up against. And so the interesting thing is, is that moving forward, any encounter with a teacher, even if it was at his um, fault, he would say, oh, they just being racist. <laughs> and so for me, 
I appreciate that and think that's better for him to always use that lens first and allow me to help him understand if it was racism or some other form of oppression or if it was really something that he contributed to or that he did. Like I'd rather reverse that than having to work to reverse the impact that racism have on us because it's so insidious in terms of how it impacts our children. It makes a difference in terms of their academic performance, their interests, um, where, where they place their value. Like it impacts them so significantly at an early age that it's important for us to start to educate them soon so that we don't have to worry about them internalizing those messages that we now have to spend years and years and years to kind of reverse and combat as it relates to, you know, more positive self-affirming things that we know about us as a people and as a culture. Yeah. Now, when you did have this conversation, you know, um, with your son, did you did you notice any level of just like anxiety that that rose up in him from from this? Like, did it kind of like heighten his, his anxiety in the sense of like, wow, I never thought about things like that. Now I have to have this different lens on, and it's just like making me at you know. At, does it? Did, did you notice anything different in him when you when you when you guys had this conversation? Absolutely. In fact, it helped him because mm. his his reactions before was confusion and low self-esteem. So something is wrong with me, right? Mm -hmm. So the first incident was about reading. His mm -hmm. teacher wouldn't give him the fourth grade reading curriculum. Everyone else got it. And he was placed into a group with kids and he was describing like some of their disabilities. So I'm saying they had disabilities by how he was describing. It, it appeared that some had language, uh, were language impaired or had um, language disorders and some other kind of communication and reading challenges. Like that was very clear by how he was explaining some of the kids um, trying to read and some of their behaviors and reactions in the group. And he was like, mom, I know I, I don't read that well, or I don't like reading, but I, I know I can read better than those kids. Mm -hmm. Like, Okay, what's going on? And then he was bringing home books that were sight words. They were clearly for first and second graders, and he was in fourth grade. So when I followed up with the teacher, she admitted, she admitted, did not see a problem with it, was wondering what my problem was, that yes, I did not give him the fourth grade reading curriculum because I don't want him to become a disruption to my classroom. And I said, well, that's interesting because he's been a disruption in your classroom before. And she said, no. I said, so how are you thinking that he's going to become a disruption if you give him the fourth grade reading curriculum? She said, well, because in my experience and with the research say, if kids can't read, then they become a behavior problem. <laughs> So essentially, what you mean is black kids become a behavior problem if they right. can't read. And so you're now saying that my son can't have a reading curriculum because he's a black boy and you don't want him to become a behavior problem. Has he ever been a behavior problem? Do you have a history of having behavior problems with him? And her response was no. And she said, but my strategies are evidence-based. Right now, this is a teacher in the education system and she tells me, her classroom strategies and her approach to teaching is evidence-based, which means the evidence says that Black kids do not read well, and when they do not, they become a behavior problem, right? Mm -hmm. So my rebuttal to her was, well, tell me 
what does the research say about how black boys learn in the classroom? Mm -hmm. She couldn't tell me, but that's okay, because I could tell her. <laughs> so I then began to educate her on what it says and also what the literature says about how Black kids are oppressed and experience racism and what that then do to their reading scores and their math levels. And so she said, I understand, but I'm still not going to give him the reading curriculum. So I followed up with her in email with her principal. And that same day, my son came home with his reading curriculum. Now, to answer your question, he was excited. Like, Mom, yes, I got my fourth grade reading curriculum. So now he feels uplifted and like he's, you know, on the same playing field with the other kids. Whereas before he was like, wait a minute, like what's going on? I'm being treated differently and I don't quite understand it. And so now when I'm able to say, well, son, that's because you're a young black boy and they don't think that black boys can read. Or if you can, and when you can't read, then you become a behavior problem. That's racism. So mm -hmm. from that point on, like again, he's almost 17. He was nine years old when we had that conversation. It's been an ongoing conversation um, and ongoing experiences because that's not his only experience. He has experienced it greatly attending a predominantly white school. And so it's, it's a constant conversation. But I think the conversation has protected him and made him feel worthy and encouraged where he's able to perform academically in a way versus, you know, feeling anxious because when we don't have that conversation, then we risk them internalizing it, their performance is lower, you know, they get involved in unhealthy behaviors and, you know, peer pressure and, and et cetera. So it did not heighten his anxiety. And in fact, it helped ground him to keep him on the straight and narrow. Yeah. And see, that's the type of microaggressions and the type of racism that happens every day in the school system. Every you know, day. When I have conversations with, with individuals about, listen, I'm in these public schools and I see the racism that happens every day with the babies. Mm -hmm. And I explain to them the same type of situation that you that you're referring to. People can't believe it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, this is the type of stuff that happens every day. And when you look at the school system, it's flawed from the from the foundation to, to the top to high, high academia. From mm -hmm. the, from not just the you know the information that, that they're that they're teaching that we're learning, but look at who the instructors are. The majority of them are predominantly white females. You know, mm -hmm. you know it's it's flawed and it's skewed from from the jump. You know, so yeah. I'm so I'm so glad that you that you highlighted that. Listen, I know you have a role with um with with uh, uh, ABCI, um black black psychology. Um, I want I want you to speak to like you know why what we're experiencing right now is not good for our mental health. But before I do that, I want to read to you um, what you have referenced. Um, I want to okay. reference what you had, the statement you have put out. Um, it says, the continuous and persistent experiences of racism create a type of vicarious trauma and psychological enslavement. The, the ongoing occurrences of racism and racial trauma increases the risk of inter internalizing such acts that will further threaten and perpetuate the intended destruction of the black community. Internalized racism means that we have accepted and believe in white superiority and black inferiority. Internalizing these racist acts is becoming more difficult to resist and continues to affect our reactions and responses. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was beautiful. Speak, speak to that a little bit to why why not not just only in the media but the the constant death that we that we are experiencing why why is that damaging to us psychologically 
Absolutely. Because when you think about when, when things happen, when we have experiences, this is what we're not always aware of, conscious of, or even consider. There's always a psychological impact in terms of how we make sense of those experiences. So let me go back a little bit and talk about how we got here, right? When we think about the period of enslavement, and I say enslavement because as a people, our ancestors, they were enslaved. They were not slaves. And so that's even miseducation or how that is taught in schools, right? Which again, we buy into this whole black inferiority because we learn very early on that we are descendants of slaves. No. We, we was captured. We were captured <laughs> and we were enslaved. Right, that's right. It's a very different idea right um as it relates to being descended from slaves no we were held captive we were enslaved we were stripped from our identity we were stripped from our our country our continent we were stripped from our families we were stripped from any and everything that we knew that our ancestors had built mm -hmm. that's what happened and so when we so from enslavement Right, we have learned, unfortunately, that we are unworthy. We are not human. We are inferior. Like we have learned that that's what was taught by the heinous acts during the enslavement period. So we, we, you know, unfortunately inherited all of these negative views of who we are as a people from that experience. After enslavement, then we have, you know, the period of Jim Crow, again, which more emphasis on black inferiority, white superiority was pronounced, right? So again, what happened is we were separated. We were not allowed to access the same resources or public places or attend the same schools. So all of this happened, right? It's all in our history. This is all we learn about. What we don't talk about is how that has impacted us psychologically, how it has shaped our view of self and our worldview in general. Now, when you have all of these layers of, of historical injuries as it relates to who you are as a person and where you have come from, when you hear it from their story, their history, of course, it makes sense and it's reasonable that we are going to believe that about us. It's all our kids are learning about in school. When they do learn about Black history, it's, it's about slavery or it's about, you know, um, our, our African-American um, leaders who have been assassinated. <laughs> so again, these things are internalized in a way where we believe it. And because we believe it, we act accordingly. So we are less likely to do things that's going to uplift our culture, uplift our race, uplift our people, right? We turn inward and we fight each other or because we feel so devalued and so dehumanized and so unworthy and et cetera, then our behaviors are gonna align itself with that. Uh, we're gonna be self-defeating. Our behaviors are gonna be self-defeating. Our thoughts are going to be self-defeating. So all of that is a psychological impact. When again, when you think about the trauma, vicarious trauma, when you have trauma, that's fear. And when we're fearful, we are less likely to respond in a way that's going to be helpful. We retreat, right? So we don't do the things that is necessary to help uplift the race. So yes, the more we continue to experience 
these racist acts, these various forms of oppression, again, it's not new to us. It's compounding. It has continued. It has been persistent. And the more we have these experiences, again, unfortunately, we risk internalizing it. And when we internalize it, basically what that means is we start to buy in to what white people say about black people. We start to buy into the treatment. Mm -hmm. We start to feel hopeless and helpless. So we're less likely to be activists or to advocate or to protest in a way that's going to help uplift our people. And so yes, the psychological impact um, is so significant that it's why we see a rise in mental health disorders that we see within the Black community. It's reasonable that we are hypervigilant. It's reasonable that we are depressed, that we are anxious. It's reasonable that we are hostile. It's reasonable that we are paranoid. Mm -hmm. Because of the experiences, the collective and individual experiences that we have and that we have had since our history here on this diaspora. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Listen, you, you just touched on something. You just said that the, you know, when we are traumatized, it, it causes us to have fear. And when mm -hmm. we have fear, then we are less likely to react. Talk to me a little bit about just like how, when we are, when we do experience trauma, how that impacts our nervous system, which ultimately plays into us, you know, to our, to our responses and our behaviors and everything. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I'm going to talk about two different things as it relates to our nervous system um, in terms of what our response patterns are like. And so um, first I wanted to talk about when we are traumatized, our bodies activate um, what we call the flight, fight, or freeze response. So basically when something traumatic happens, either we fight, we flight, run, or we freeze, we become stuck. And depending on, you know, our biological makeup and what's going on with us, um, biologically speaking, it's going to activate one of those responses. And so I always like to ask people, like, when you've been disturbed or had a very stressful experience, like, do you tend to fight? I mean, you respond in a way that you're going to, you know, fight it, whether it's peaceful, violent, you meet it with aggression. However, um, do you fight? do you run from it? So do you avoid, do you isolate yourself, right? Or do you freeze? Like you just don't do anything about it at all. Um, what do you do? So that's um, one way that we respond as it relates to trauma. But the other way in terms of like the brain structure, there's a part of the brain that really um, drives our emotions, our anxiety levels, our, aggressive, our aggression levels, and that's the amygdala. So when we are constantly dealing with trauma and this repeated trauma and this constant activation, our amygdala becomes overly stimulated. So it's overactivated. And when that happens, the logical side of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, the logical side of our brain becomes um, hijacked. So it's no longer working or functioning appropriately to a way that we can get to our logical brain and think through and say, okay, what's a balanced way to kind of manage or deal with or respond to these situations? So we either fight, freeze, or, or flight, or, and we have to understand that our amygdala is overly activated to the degree that we're being more emotional in our responses versus 
using the logical side of our brain to kind of help bring some balance where we can respond in a way that's going to be more healthy, uplifting, and liberating. Yeah. And see, that's so, that's so important because I, I think when we, the, the general public, when they hear the term trauma, I think we mm -hmm. automatically go to the most extreme. We think mm -hmm. of like car accidents, uh, violent behavior, like when people get in fights, when people are killed, you know, we take it to the extreme. You know, um, and I had to learn through my own experiences and just going, through going to therapy regularly that I experienced trauma. I grew up in a domestic violent household and I had no idea that seeing your parents argue constantly, constantly all the time and just seeing abuse regularly. I didn't know that that, would, that, that is necessarily traumatizing, but I had to learn mm -hmm. through my own work that it very much so is. Mm -hmm. And that led me down on just a rabbit hole of just understanding what trauma is. And number one, trauma is, in, is inevitable um mm -hmm. in, in life but mm -hmm. for black people it's like I, I don't know the exact statistics and you maybe you could speak to more to uh, to this more than i could but i would imagine that for black people we experience trauma at 10 times 20 times the rate of 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 of, of other ethnic groups absolutely and and here's here's the thing so first um trauma is a fairly new phenomenon if you mm. And so, and it also originated with, with the military, right? Combat exposed veterans. Um, so when we talk about trauma and the official diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, that's a fairly new thing that's happened, um, I would say, 70s, 80s, probably okay. early 80s. Okay. So when you think about it, and I think it's interesting because at first it was reserved for veterans and more so for white people. Mm-hmm. Even um, combat exposed veterans who were coming back um, from war, the black um, veterans were not given post-traumatic stress disorder, trauma-informed disorder. They were given psychotic disorders, mm -hmm. right? Because of the paranoia. Mm -hmm. And to make matters more complicated, um, experiences of racism because it was normalized or people don't believe that it exists, then the black experience is not necessarily captured or considered, right? So people think that racism for the most part do not exist, or there's some, you know, heated discussion, a controversial discussion about if it exists or if it doesn't exist. And so when we have that to kind of consider or fight through, and then you have people who are being traumatized mm -hmm. by racially driven events, then again, the whole experience gets minimized. So if we were to look at the Black experience in general on a day-to-day -day basis, the rate at which we are experiencing racism and various forms of, of oppression is trauma, right? Then we have to deal with the impact of internalized racism. When we talk about internalized racism, that's when we're talking about Black-on-Black -black crime, um, we're talking about domestic violence. Um, we're talking about the community violence that we see. A lot of that is internalized racism. Why? Because we have bought into and believe that we are inferior, unworthy, not human, devalued. So why not? Yeah. Right? So that's what that is. And so even how we just kind of think about our experiences, we do it in a way where we don't necessarily consider 
the impact that racism and various forms of oppression and how traumatizing it is mentally, spiritually, culturally, psychologically, every existence and aspect of our being is traumatized. And I appreciate you raising that question because biologically speaking, it changes our whole chemical balance in terms of how we are operating and how we're thinking through and trying to function and just breathe, if you will. So it, yeah. the, the impact is significant. Yeah. Yeah, that's and that's 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 so that's so important what you're saying. I mean, even to the even to the aspects of how we support our su support one another collectively, that is a a a symptom of in, internal uh, uh, internal oppression. Um, Absolutely. That, that 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 that's so that's so so good. Did you hear the um? Are you familiar with with Drew Brees, the um, quarterback from the New Orleans Saints? Did you hear his comment from a couple of days ago? <laughs> so I, I'm aware that he made a comment. And but you don't know what he said. But I don't know what the comment was. So the gist of it was they they asked him about you know listen with the George Floyd uh, death and the protests uh, happening recently you know it's it's looking like it's going to bring about uh, when the NFL season does come you know a lot of the NFL players are going to be looking to take a knee um, you know in, in the in the wake of everything that's going on right now how are you kind of like preparing for that knowing that you know some of your teammates protested. Uh, when Colin Kaepernick did or whatever, what, what are your thoughts on the protest? And Drew Brees, first thing that came, comes out of his mouth, his initial response is, I will never agree with anybody disrespecting the flag. And then he goes on to talk about how when he looks at the flag, he sees his great-grandfather, his two grandfathers who fought in the war and everything like that, and the pride that they come with with, with the flag. and. When he thinks of the flag, it even brings tears to his eyes, and he thinks about unity and everything like that. The media killed him immediately. I mean, mm -hmm. LeBron killed him, NFL players mm -hmm. killed him, mm -hmm. ESPN killed him. Everybody was on him. And mm -hmm. one of the best things that I liked, uh, I heard one of the uh, a, a, a black uh, sports anchor, Michael Wilbon, said. He said, "Listen," he said. Don't act like black folks wasn't out there on them front lines fighting them wars too. Absolutely. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. So going back to what you said. When we fought in those wars, we returned home and didn't get the same treatment. Not just yes. from a mental health standpoint, we not only did we not get the, the diagnosis of PTSD, but some of those individuals couldn't get homes, they couldn't get jobs, they didn't have the same total, total experiences talk as, as your ancestors did. Absolutely. So I, I, his whole comment was, it was ignorant, it was insensitive, mm -hmm. But it showed his true colors, and that's one. Of, that's one of the things that I really am appreciating about what's going on. Mm -hmm. White people, tell me how you feel. I want to know right. the truth. Tell me where you stand so I can know. Because I, I, if I know how to deal with you, then we, then we cool. You mm -hmm. know, so I can appreciate that people are saying how they feel, and to an extent, at least, they're being held accountable. Now, to, to that, and I don't, I don't know how much you've been seeing this, but on social media and even just in the media. Um, I turned on Netflix earlier today and I seen like a, a Black Lives Matter icon up on Netflix and stuff. And, I, and I'm concerned about, you know, the, the lip service that's going on right now from a corporation level, you know, from, from, a, from a macro level. I feel like people are trying to monetize and they're trying to colonize this revolution. And that in itself is so, so dangerous. Like, people are, like, I seen Nike said that they're going to donate $40 million. 
Jordan came out and said he's going to donate $100 million over 10 years. And it's all the same language. And I'm like, yo, are y'all not aware of what's going on? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it's the same language. They're going to donate money to fight system inequality and systematic oppression. Mm-hmm. But there's no real account to where this money is going, who it's going to, what policies is it, is it really, you know, changing? That's right. It's, it's, right. it's, it's none of that. Um, that's right. So I'm, I'm not sure if, you, if you've seen any of that, but that's the part that's just a little like, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really feeling that aspect of what's going on right now. That's right. At all. That's right. Because, and, and here's why. Number one, well, there, there are a few reasons why I think that we are quick to throw our money and we think that that's the main issue. Um, If you want to donate money, like you said, where's the money going and, and what cause is it going to? Mm-hmm. But what we need to be doing is building our own. Like right. We have our own banks, our own, you know, hospitals. So we don't have to worry about all these inequalities that we have to experience when we encounter these various systems. And so, again, the other piece to that is, yes, absolutely, I think, people want to monetize the revolution, but I also think that people are trying not to lose money because I also understand that there's um, something circulating with various businesses on it that's, that's supporting Trump. Right. So there's a lot of anxiety about, well, I don't want to, I don't want to lose viewers or money or, you know, notoriety or credibility. And so people are just doing things. And unfortunately, it's not dealing with the root cause mm-hmm. issue. So you're absolutely correct. But again, this is this is my point. I think collectively, we all have been traumatized or at least disturbed to some degree. When we think about white people and how white people are responding, number one, um, I hope that we're not too focused on that, but I feel like it's important to address because we tend to focus on how white people are responding, whether they're being supportive or whether they don't understand or they're being, you know, re-traumatizing and re-victimizing. But even when you think about the example of Drew Brees, and unfortunately, white people ancestors were racist. Mm-hmm those messages have been transmitted generationally, just like the messages that we receive as people of African descent about being inferior. Just how our whole generational process has gone in terms of the messages that we receive, they receive the same. That's a fact. So although you may not be aware of it, and we like to use fancy terms like implicit bias because I'm not aware of it, so to speak. The reality is, It's within you. It has been ingrained in you. And when we don't acknowledge it or even take a position, because a lot of times it's like, well, you know, I don't see um, color or, you know, I'm not racist. But again, we are in a state where that's not enough. At this point, we have to be anti. We have to be anti-racist. That's right. That's right. right. We have to take a position. Very clear. Right. Right. Um, and then there's a misnomer when people say, well, you know, I don't have a position. you not having a position is your position. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. your position. And so I guess um, white privilege is real. And because Drew Brees doesn't have to experience 
the black experience because he is a white man, he will never be able to understand in a degree that why it's not appropriate or why it is appropriate to kneel or to protest right. a country that is imposing these racist, heinous acts right. our people collectively. And everybody is impacted by it. Everybody. That's right. That's, that's Whether right. you're impacted positively or negatively, we're all impacted by these various things that are happening. See, over the last few days, I've really been dealing with the thought of, because all on social media you hear, you see the little like signs of people holding up at the protest, nobody is born racist. And that, that statement, I've been really thinking about that statement mm -hmm. uh, lately. And I'm like, you know what? I kind of disagree with that. Mm -hmm. Because it is so ingrained within the society. It is so heavy. It is, it does permeate within, it's, it's like, it's like air. No, yeah. no matter, even if you are mindful of your breath, you are taking your breath. That's right. Because <laughs> if That's you don't right. take your breath, you will die. You mm -hmm. know, so anytime you are a, a, alive and well and being, racism is just, it's, it's, it's in it. You know, it is, mm -hmm. it is, it is blatant. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm kind, of, I'm kind of been wrestling, you know, with that, with that whole ideology. I, I'm kind of disagreeing with that. I, I don't, I don't know if I really agree with that anymore. I'm gonna keep, keep kind of sitting on it, um, yeah, a, a, a little bit more. But listen, I want to ask you, what's your, what's your thoughts on, on reparations and like how, what, in what form do you think that like we could have those rolled out in a, in a proper way, if any way? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, because again, I don't necessarily think, um, I would wanna know what the, rep what the reparations are because how it's talked about is it's attached to a dollar figure. Mm -hmm. Again, here we are placing value on money. Money is not going to fix what we are going through, what we have been going through, what we will continue to go through. You cannot put a dollar amount on that. So when we're talking about reparations, I would want to know how are we defining that and what does it consist of? Because the reality is, is I think that we are responsible for who we are. Mm -hmm. We know that we know how to build our own because our ancestors have done it. We built this country. That's right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like we know but unfortunately, because we have internalized these messages, we can't get out of our own way. Mm -hmm. So what are reparations exactly, right? How are we defining that? How are we making sense and meaning of that as it relates to what is going to really build our people, build our community and liberate us from all of this? Mm -hmm. Me, I, I like to look at it from that perspective. And unfortunately, you know, the conversation for me, from my perspective and, and, and what I've been um, familiar with is all based on pay us money for everything that y'all have done to us. Well, that's very Eurocentric yep. and very self-optimal. Nor is it a fix to what we have dealt with, right? That's not the fix. But we have to position ourselves to remember who we are, where we come from, and what it is we need to do collectively as a people to rebuild, that's gonna be our reparations. Until we get that and understand that to the degree that we can begin to make some headway, headway with that, we're gonna to continue to be dealing with this on a regular basis. 
Yeah. White people can't. Are we waiting on white people to save us? <laughs> right. That's not gonna happen. Right. 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 And that's why any anytime I hear the conversation of reparation that gets brought up, I always go to the to the to, to the mental aspect of it. Like, listen. Anytime you give anybody a bunch of money who is not, you know, well off mentally, who doesn't know what to do with it, who doesn't have the skills to manage it, who's never had a lump sum of money ever before, you know, they're going to do what they know how to do, which is be consumers, <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying, and, and give it away, you know. So I'm, I'm always on, on the side of, number one, I think that us as black people, we need, we need to continue to go through emotional and mental evolutions first. Um, I, I was just having a conversation with a uh, one of my young homies. He had reached out to me. He 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 a real good good dude, and he reached out to me like, "Yo, man, like, what what, what we got to do?" Like, you know, he was asking me a lot of questions. Um, he was like, "Man, we 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 need money. We need economic power, and you know all this." And I said, "Listen, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that I think that economically is the way that we." impact them like i think that's the way that we impact the system that's the way that we impact white people that's the thing that they care about the most that's, that's the right. that's the way that they are able to uh claim their status that's that's the way that they you know claim their livelihood and that's just the way that they're able to have have and inflict their power so i, I do agree that economically needs to be a focus but i said listen man we have to continue to go through these emotional and mental you know just again, evolutions is, is is what I said. You know, we have to go go through that process. You know, of of going within and really loving ourselves and understanding our trauma and understanding right. our history of trauma. Um, and and as we continue to do that, then I think a lot of the other things will continue to fall fall in place. Um, but it's just always interesting to to get um, individuals you know, out, out, outlook on, on, on record reparations. Talk yeah. to me a little bit about psychological enslavement. Yes, because that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're like, yes, yeah. that's the enslavement imposed on us psychologically. Mm -hmm. And so again, by design and what was intended when slavery physically, if you will, was ending, um, what was imposed on us was this whole mental enslavement process where they no longer needed to necessarily have physical slaves, that we will do what we needed to do based off of their design, which is, you know, kill each other or, or believe in the fact that we are inferior or, or dehumanized and devalued and et cetera, that we will do it to ourselves. White people no longer have to do it. Those messages have been so powerful um, and so implied on a consistent basis that now our fight is to resist all of that. So you're right, the mental and emotional healing process that we have to go through before anything else could happen is essential. Other than that, we're just gonna keep playing into their system and their worldview and values and ideas that keeps us down here and keeps them up here. Um, psychological enslavement, I think, is probably the biggest challenge that we have collectively as a people. And if we don't know it, if we're not knowledgeable enough to know who we are, where we come from, and how this has continuously impacted us, we're going to continue to be enslaved mentally. Yeah. that's Listen, that's why it's so important. Black people, go to therapy. Please go, go to therapy. Find you a good provider. But go mm -hmm. to therapy, please. You know, yes. um, 
is so it, it is so good for us to you know sit down and, and and get and get these things out you know to be able to really I, I think a, at least I'll speak from my own experience and, and my experience with going to therapy regularly um a, a few things that I've taken from it is number one I've been able to understand that I don't really control much <laughs> no, number one um so when I'm able to understand that I have to let go of control it allows me to be present um it allows me to just appreciate what's going on around me um mm -hmm. it allows me to just like enjoy things a little bit more you know when you're yeah. kind of trying to control you're always anxious you're always right. you know got your guard up that's just that's not right. a, a that's cool right. way to live um mm -hmm. another thing that i you know take away from just going is it's just forgiveness and having empathy you know for with other people but for, for myself as well first that's you know, right anytime i have now anytime i have any level of like confrontation or i feel mm -hmm. like it's about to lead to confrontation like before, I would just like, all right, look, if I got to go there, I'm going to go there. But now I'm able to like take a step back, mm -hmm. you know, really like be mindful, observe the situation that's going on. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to, you know, proceed mindfully from there. And a lot of times I'm able to empathize with people and like, you know what, what we got going on right now don't even have anything to do with me per se. You, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And I think that if we as, as, as black people are able to do that collectively, then mm -hmm. we will begin to break down those internal oppressed walls that we have for, for one another. So please, right. black people, go to go to therapy. Get, That's get, right. You know, you know talk, talk to somebody. I don't know if you're going to be able to get nobody as good as Dr. T, but find, <laughs> find somebody to, 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 to talk to. That's right. Listen, I want to I I ask you this. Um, mm -hmm. a, a lot of times, we, again, we, talk, we, we use this language, we use these words, and what I'm finding out are that there are a lot of, you know, people who are just ignorant and they just do not know, you mm -hmm. know. So what is oppression and how does racism fall within oppression? Right. So oppression is the global term that we use that really kind of speak to how society has really categorized us as people and who we are based on our demographics and our makeup, we are assigned to certain groups. And certain groups have certain privileges and certain groups have not those privileges or disadvantages. So advantages and disadvantages. And so oppression is just basically a whole structural um, way to say who is better than whom and who get what advantages and who gets the disadvantages. And so whether it's, you know, our race, so we have racism, whereas white people are the privileged group and get a set of you know, benefits because they are white. Then we have sexism, which is based on gender. And so male is considered the dominant group. So males have a certain privilege that women do not have. Then we have classism. Again, that's based on socioeconomic status. Um, people who are more affluent, who have more money, have a set of advantages. And people who are considered lower class have disadvantages. Um, then we have heterosexism, where we have people who are heterosexual are considered the, the um, dominant group come with a set of benefits and people who are same sex oriented, they are, you know, the minority and have a set of disadvantages. And so again, it's just the way that society is structured um, to assign us to different categories that comes with certain benefits. So depending on who you are, 
um, and what your status is, it affords you some opportunities or it could work against you. And so that's what oppression is. So we live in a system that is oppressive because of the structure and categories in which how they assign people. Wow. And racism fits into that, right? So if you are not white, um, you do not have the same advantages or opportunities that white people have. So, so is it safe to say that everybody has their version of privilege? Certain groups have certain privileges depending on what that group is. Absolutely. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that's <laughs> so so we all have we all have work to do. You know, no we we all we all got a job to do, period. Um everybody. And and, and black folks, you know, are, are we have to be aware of what's going on, you know, systemically, mm-hmm. um, globally, like you said. We we have we have to be aware of what's going on. Listen, what do you what do you think is going to to, to happen, you know, from, from this from this situation, you know, the the protests and the, the uproar that we're seeing in the country right now. Not to mm-hmm. not to mention like we still in the middle of a pandemic as well, you know, but systemically, do you think that the George Floyd uh death, do you think it's gonna spiral and snowball to anything policy, you know, wise being changed? We did recently we did see that the uh the officers have all been arrested um the the officer his the, the one who killed him his charges were upgraded on um, the second degree murder i believe there's a black da prosecutor on the case which is super good um mm-hmm. but i'm just curious you know what what do you think this is do you think anything is going to happen from this situation systemically we're in an election year it, it what, mm-hmm. what do you see yeah so i will tell you based on the history of this country and our experience. Damn, damn, damn. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Based on the history of this country, mm-hmm. I'm not hopeful that the system will change. Right. What I am hopeful and encouraged about is how we come together as a people and begin to work collectively and creatively um, together to do what we need to do to prevent this from happening or to protect us from when these things do happen moving forward. So no, I do not have faith in a system just by our history and not even our history, but it's playing out right now, which is why we have to protest. Um, So I'm not very hopeful um, that the system will do the right thing. Um, I pray that it does, but I'm not hopeful. I am hopeful and encouraged by our responses. And this is an opportunity for us to unify, come together, rebuild, do our part, do what's necessary, but we can start to see some changes. Because here's the thing, we still don't have our people in place to be able to influence those policy changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anytime the majority of your leaders are of the, the dominant group who are racist by nature of their existence and how they've been socialized, we are going to be at a disadvantage. Until we can vote and do the things that we have some power and control in doing and putting our people, getting educated and, and sitting at the table and doing the things that we can do at that level, we're going to continue to fall short. And that, again, I don't know if that's going to happen in my lifetime, but in the meantime, what needs to happen is we have to begin to unify as a people 
and do what's necessary to take care of us because the system is not going to take care of us. It wasn't designed to. It was designed for our demise. And that's what we are seeing and experiencing firsthand. So the responsibility falls on us. And we have to reach back and look at our history, pre-enslavement, pre-colonization, and see what was our ancestors doing. We started and built civilization. How do we do that? And how do we get back there and begin to do some of those things currently so that we can have the same rights, opportunities, and equalities that we are not afforded under the current design. Yeah, that's that's so true and so and so real. Um, it is also depressing <laughs> to to know that the reality of the situation is, you know, this is not a news. This is not a new story. You know, this is not anything new. I mean, we still have. I just named those officers. You know, who have been who have been arrested, Rihanna Taylor's killers still ain't, you know, they ain't, they ain't been arrested, you know, <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? So we still, we still have a long, long, long way to go. Listen, let's, let's talk about some solutions. Like how do we, how do we stay grounded in, in this moment? What can people do? Like, what can we look forward to do on the, on the day to day to kind of keep our spirits lifted? You know, how Absolutely. can we stay grounded um, in, in a, in a healthy, healthy reality? Absolutely. So very, um, the primary thing is going back and talking about the importance of racial socialization, but socializing ourselves to who we are as a people is very important. And there's a ton of research that supports how racial socialization really protects us. And so again, to, when we talk about racial socialization, we basically are saying that we have to ground ourselves and become knowledgeable about who we are and understand that we do live in a society that's oppressive and racist. Mm -hmm. We do. Whether you can call it what it is in the moment of when it happens, whether you're second guessing or whether it's so overt that you know what it is, but how do we prepare we're not prepared because we live in a society that says it doesn't exist. And because we believe what we're told versus what the evidence show, then we'd let our guard down. So if we understand that we live in a racist society and our chances of encountering racism, various forms of it, then we're going to be prepared. So we have to prepare ourselves. And that's a point of, of racial socialization. Um, what do we do about it when we are encountered? The more we know and prepare, the less we will internalize it, which again, the internalization process is what gets us into trouble from recovering. So that whole racial socialization, I encourage people to Google it, read about it, look at some research connected to it, but that's what we have to do for us and for our kids. It's very important. Secondly, um, I keep talking and also um, writing about the importance of cultural grounding. And racial socialization is a form of grounding ourselves culturally. Essentially, who are we? Remember who we are and where we come from. If we understand that and connect to our rituals and our values and the things that our ancestors have relied on to survive these various acts that we see currently, our ancestors have been there and done that. This is a new to us as a people. So what did our ancestors do to survive? What rituals, what values were instilled? Like, what were they doing? And that's what we have to get back to because we know that that has worked. 
Why? Because we're here dealing with yet another um, decade of, again, very heinous racist acts or whatever. It feels like, now, of course, I wasn't born in the 60s, but what I've learned about the 60s, it seems like that's where we are, right? So we need movements, right? Another civil rights movement to really protest and fight and get the results that it is we need to get again for us. And I think that starts within the culture. So the more we can rely on our values and our virtues that's grounded in who we are as African people, um, the more we are going to be able to survive, stay grounded and resist internalizing the different forms of racism that we see and experience on a regular basis. What what are some what what are some of those values that that you like to use um, that that keeps you grounded? What are some of your favorite values that you can always hold on to? Absolutely. So the values I'm going to speak to again. So this came about during the '60s to kind of help ground us culturally, so we can see the big picture and be able to fight towards our own liberation and survival. And so Nguzu Saba are the Kwanzaa values that we typically see during, you know, the holiday season, December 26th to January 1. Those were developed by uh, Milana Karenga in 1966. Again, here we are in the 60s. And he developed these values to kind of help keep us grounded and focused and to survive. And so those values include unity, right? So again, I'm speaking about how we need to unify as a people during this time more than ever so we can come together and think creatively, which is another one, creativity on how to survive it, right? We have to be self-determined. That's the third value. How are we going to be so self-determined and driven that we can stay the course, that we can stay focused and stay on track what it is that we need to accomplish as a people? <clears throat> have cooperative economics, right? Let's put our money and resources together and let's, let's buy and support within our culture so we can build our culture, right? Again, we have to start within. That's the only way to handle this. Collect the work and responsibility. We have to do it together. We mm -hmm. have to do it together because we're all impacted. This is not an individual fight. This is a collective fight. So how do we work collectively together to have that impact? We got to be purposeful, right? Very intentional, understanding who we are, where we come from, what our purpose is and why we're here and make sure that we are aligning ourselves with that. And then last, but, and most important is we got to keep the faith. So not just faith in our leaders and in our people, but faith in ourselves that we are doing the best that we can, trying to stay grounded and fight this fight that our ancestors have been fighting since we've been on this planet. Beautiful, beautiful. Listen, live, live, live and die by your values, people. You know, li, li, very live, important. Live and live and die by your values. Listen, I want to, I want to ask you a question. <laughs> a lot of people who I've been speaking to, um, fr friends of mine, they've been telling me like, man, my white friend reached out to me and you know hit me with they hit me with their guilt, yada yada yada. And I'm mm -hmm. curious, has any like white person reached out to you during this time, like, hey? what can I be doing during this time? And it's so, and the reason I asked that question is because I was listening to somebody earlier and it was just like, listen, we as black folks, we tired of doing everything for white folks. It is not our job to educate you on why you are racist and how you benefit from this, this system. Like that's, that's not our job to do. There's plenty of literature 
and there's plenty of resources out there for you to learn on your own. You know, but everywhere I turn, I hear people talking about, you know, white people is coming to ask them about, you know, how, how they can, you know, be an ally and what, what they can do. And I just think that's kind of like, you know, insensitive and, and irresponsible. But it's, you know, it's white people, white people. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm interested to know, you know, from you, has that, has that happened to you recently? No, it has not happened um, to me recently. Um, and I don't know if that's because I am um, pretty direct and upfront about what I'm thinking and right. thinking about it. Um, and so I don't know if if that's intimidating or, um, yeah, if it's intimidating. I don't know what other way, but I don't really encounter that. But I do think that's interesting because here's the other thing that happens. I think whether it's indirect or direct or passive, intentional or not, the impact is the same. But I think that is, a, a, the reason that that happened is because they want us to take care of them emotionally, right? I'm, I don't have room to take care of your guilt and your emotional reaction. We got enough over here that we're dealing with. And see, that's my point. We have to stay focused. We get concerned about white people's response or white people wanting to help. Um, again, whatever it is that they want to do, that's fine. They can do it outside. What we need to do is focus on inside. We need to take care of home. We need to make sure we're good and we're okay. We can't depend on them. See, and that's again, by design, we cannot depend on them. And by design, they want us to depend on them. And we're not going to do that. That has gotten us nowhere in the current state that we're in right now. And so I just think that, um, unfortunately, it's just another way to keep us distracted, um, to keep us focused on white people. We already know what that is. At this point, we have to stay focused and not distracted by all this outside noise and make sure we're doing what we need to do for us. We can't rely on anybody else. We have to rely on us. And so whatever they're doing, that's fine. Whether they do something or not, we still need to be okay. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. No, no one um, directly. They ain't coming at you. Yeah, but they ain't, they ain't came at me like that either. So I, I feel 100%. <laughs> it's just some of the people I've been talking to. So yeah, yeah white folks do, do your own work, man. We, we, we got enough on our plate. That's right. We got enough. We got enough on our plate. Listen, Dr. T, thank you so much. This is, this has been wonderful. Um, you provided a lot of value. I know people are going to enjoy this episode. Um, you have been terrific. Um, before we get out of here, I got a few rapid questions. Um, okay. and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get out of here. Listen, what do you know to be true? What I know to be true is <laughs> who I am. Uh huh where I come from and what our challenges are as a people. That's what I know to be true. Um, and again, I think that's very important because it kind of helps keep me grounded and focused on what needs to happen moving forward. When we don't know our truth and we're miseducated or not knowledgeable is when we get ourselves into bigger trouble. Got it, got it. What, what is your purpose and how do you, how, how does that play into what it is that you do today on a day-to-day? -day? Absolutely. Um, my purpose is exactly what I'm doing, um, which is why, although this is exhausting, it's also rewarding because it just gives me another platform and opportunity to share the wealth of knowledge 
that is necessary for our people to be liberated. And so my purpose is really grounded in me defending our history. So my African day name is Ama. I was born on Saturday and it's all about defending our, our history. And so I know that to be part of who I am and my purpose and why I'm placed here. So being able to have that knowledge base and to be able to share that wealth and knowledge with my people in hopes of liberating us um, is why I'm doing what I'm doing. So my purpose is definitely aligned with the work that I'm doing today. So I'm very appreciative of that. Dope, dope. What are your, uh, what are your intentions during this time? How are you being intentional during this time? It's time of craziness. How are you being intentional? Yes, I am being intentional with the strategies um, that I shared earlier um, in terms of making sure racial socialization is a part of our, our daily conversation, making sure that we are remaining grounded, remaining grounded culturally and spiritually, um, and making sure that we are staying focused. And so, yes, we have to be very intentional about that with all the other distractions um, that are happening. We, we are dealing with trauma after trauma after trauma. We haven't even recovered or healed from one trauma before we're hit with another. Right. So interrelated impact is so significant that we got to make sure we're being intentional with staying grounded and staying purposeful. Yes, yes, I, I, absolutely. What is your favorite thing about Black people? My favorite people about black, my favorite thing about black people is how resilient we are. Right. Right. We're resilient. Do we know where we come from? My favorite proverb in saying is we need to walk like we have 3,000 ancestors walking behind us. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's powerful. And that's what we need to do. Um, we're resilient. We've been here before. We survived it. Let's, let's do what we know works because of the experiences of our ancestors. Right. I love that about us. 100%. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I love that about us, too. We're going we gonna to win this war, people. We just got to keep fighting. And like Dr. T said, you know, remember and know who we are and stay grounded in, 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 in who we are. Listen, that's, that's another episode in the books. Listen, please go to episode four to check out Dr. T's uh, story as well. We got into, uh, you know, a lot of her backstory as well. Um, Dr. T, I thank you so much for coming out. Um, all, all, all episodes are available on YouTube, 2 through 14. Please go to the page and subscribe, like, and tell me what you don't like. Um, all, all the episodes are available on audio platforms as well, on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So please like and subscribe to those, to those channels as well. Again, another episode. We are out.